and welcome back to this episode of the Improved Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I am joined by Jeff Harmon and Larissa Gobetz. Hey, guys. Howdy. Hey. Well, uh, we are live on Facebook today with our 650,000 followers on the Improved Photography Facebook page, and we are taking your questions live. So if you uh, ask any questions for those who are watching live, uh, we'd love to take them here at the start of the segment. We'll start with a question from Improved Photography Plus. Katie Shipley uh, says that she's doing an import um, with her photos and Lightroom keeps hanging up, that it's just not finishing the import all the way. Um, and so uh, I talked with her through a couple solutions. One is I've had problems with cards sometimes where there was a card issue um, and it just wouldn't get all of the data off. It could just be, you know, just a random bug in Lightroom, um, which is definitely possible. Um, but uh, I, I had another question um, that was kind of related to this. Every time I, I import photos from uh, into Lightroom from my phone, it always brings up the error that says not all photos were, were imported. Do, why does it say that? Do you guys know? Do you, have, do you have that problem? I have I not do. seen that. You've seen that, Larissa? Yeah, I can't always import all the photos um, from my phone into Lightroom. It just kind of stops. I have like 4,000 photos on there, so... Okay, so what what version of iPhones? Uh, I have any any version. Plus. It's been happening for a long time. That sometimes I'll do an import and it'll bring up a little dialog box that says it it didn't import everything. So it's definitely have, one that I've always wanted. Live? But then I'll like spot check it. I'll check all the photos on the on the phone that I know are there, and then I'll check in Lightroom, and and everything seems to be there. And so I'm wondering if these are like sidecar or hidden files on the iPhone. Um, and it's just drawing this error, but but it does seem like all the photos are there. Do you have live photos turned on? I don't. Nope. Okay. That would have been my guess. Yeah. So on the iPhone and also uh, some Android cameras are doing this as well. There's this new thing called live photos. That's instead of taking a picture when you take a picture, it's actually taking a short one second video file. Um, and so when you import your photos, they're not JPEGs. They're importing as tiny little video files, which uh, I don't really like. I really don't like the way that this has been imported, um, uh, uh, implemented on the iPhone uh, because you want those JPEGs. You want that full resolution JPEG to do things, but now it's in a weird format. Is that a new feature of, of Lightroom Mobile? So that came out in iOS 9 in for iPhone. Mm -hmm. is something called Live Photo. So it has to do with the operating system, not with Lightroom. And I I turned it off, too. I didn't like it. Okay. Um, uh, the the on... other thing I would suggest, Jim, is uh, copy the photos off to your computer first rather than directly importing them from the device. So with the card or with the iPhone, if you copy them off first and then import them, that can separate the diff the two things out. Uh, it was a really good suggestion that was on the Photo Taco Facebook group. I, I think Katie posted exactly the same question to all of them trying to get help. If you put in your card into the computer and then you just, through Finder or Windows Explorer, you copy them yourself from the flashcard to your your computer's hard drive, then if it fails in the copy, then you'll know you've got a problem with the, the card. And it's not, the, your computer is not reading the card correctly. You could try putting it back in the, the camera and use a USB cable, see if you can get it off that way. 
But um, it's kind of helpful, I think, to separate those two things out. And then if you can copy them all to your computer and then they still have a problem importing the Lightroom, then that's kind of more of a Lightroom problem rather than it is a problem with your card. Very cool. All right, the next question on Facebook Live is from CJ Jones. He says, when would you ever want to use an ISO under ISO 100? Um, and I, I can take this one. So most, cam most serious cameras are going to bottom out at ISO 100. Uh, but most cameras also will have lower interpolated I ISOs. And I think that's probably what he's talking about because there are not many serious cameras, you know, DSLRs or, or interchangeable lens, uh, lens cameras that have a lower native ISO than 100. Uh, like the Nikon D810, I think it's, its low ISO is 62, which is very strange. It's almost always 100. On a Fuji camera, it's 200, but usually it's 100. But then we see, as we scroll the ISO even lower, we have options for low 3, low 7 um, on the ISO. And what that's doing is the camera is, doesn't actually have an ISO under 100 in that case. What it's doing is it's just using software to darken down the image from there. Um, so a time that you would want to do it is when it's, uh, you know, maybe 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning and you're trying to get a long shutter speed at a waterfall, then we'd use these lower interpolated I ISOs uh, so that you can get a longer shutter speed and get that silky water. Uh, the problem with it is it's just not very good. The image quality is not great. Uh, I've tried this both on um, Nikon and Canon and Fuji, and I just didn't have great results using any of these interpolated ISOs. All right, uh, the next question is going to come uh, from Brian Denslow on Improved Photography Plus. I kind of I want to just do a poll on this one. Tell me what you guys think. Uh, basically, he took some pictures for a local hair salon. Uh, they really liked the pictures. It was just kind of a for fun thing. Uh, he spent four hours taking the photos, but now they want him to print some wall art and also a coffee table book uh, to decorate the salon. And so besides the cost of the actual prints, what do you think he should charge uh, the salon? So it was kind of a, just a fun thing, but now it's turned into a job with the work he's already done. Uh, so, you know, obviously there's no right or wrong here, right? And obviously some photographers are going to say, you know, I want 2000 bucks, And some photographers are going to say, how about 50 uh, You know, there, there's no set price for this. And so you kind of just need to decide what's going to be reasonable in that situation. But, but given those facts that this is not a professional photographer, he was just doing it for fun, and now they want to make some orders, what would you charge, Larissa? Um, I probably, since I was doing it for fun and didn't have an agreement with them ahead of time, I would not charge them for my time basically, but I would definitely charge them for the prints that they would like the coffee table book and any wall art. But since we did not have an agreement at the beginning and since, you know, we don't know whether he asked them if he could take pictures or if they asked him if he could, if he could take pictures for them, that makes a big difference. If he asked them, hey, can I come in and take pictures for you, you know, for my portfolio or whatever, then he shouldn't be charging them for his time. What do you think, Jeff? So I, uh, I would value my time a little bit on this. Even if you're a hobbyist, even if, if you intended to just have this be a kind of a charity thing, you're doing the shoot for free, uh, if you're having to spend a little bit of time, especially if you're not used to doing this, if you've never done these kind of prints before, I'd probably um, figure out how much my time was worth being away from either my family or other photo shoots or whatever it is 
my time would be worth something. So I'd I'd probably charge them a little bit of uh, overhead versus just the straight up prints. Then again, if you've never done it before, it can be a learning experience. So that might, it might be a good thing to to chuck up to learning too. So it would just kind of be up to I think the photographer about where they are in their photography, how comfortable they are doing this sort of thing. Very cool. Ivan Mansoor asks on on uh, the Facebook page. He says, "What is your opinion about mirrorless versus a regular DSLR?" Um, you know, this is a loaded question, but I think we can probably all agree on at least one thing in um, in this debate is it used to be the super cool thing that like, oh, yeah, I'm going mirrorless. I'm doing this new cool hip thing to um, uh, to go mirrorless. And then people kind of realized, wait a minute. Why am I going mirrorless? <laughs> this is this is very much like when people are say, well, I'm going to go full frame. It's like, okay, but why are you doing that? And often if you really write down all the pros and cons of both, uh, you find that maybe it didn't actually make sense for you. So I have an um, answer. I have an answer. <laughs> okay. When we were in Greece, I was very, 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 very thankful that I did not bring my D800 with me because it weighed so much and we walked so much and the A6300 that I had did perfectly fine with focusing and color and all that stuff. So there was one time we went up, well, probably three times we went up about 500 flights or 500 steps. And I was so glad I was not carrying that D800 with my normal 24 to 300 lens on it. So that was very important to me and the quality of the pictures were, they were just as good. Well, I wouldn't say well, just as good, but that, they were good except enough. I think that is more of a function of the sensor size than it is of the fact that it's mirrorless. So, you know, we're talking about removing a mirror. It's that big. It weighs like <laughs> 20 grams right. uh, from the camera. So just being mirrorless <laughs> itself isn't actually going to remove any significant weight. And that's exactly what we saw with the Sony A7R2 series. Uh, everybody says, oh, awesome, it's full frame and it's super tiny, so it's lightweight. Except it's not lighter weight. It's no. the same weight as <laughs> any normal full frame camera, any normal full frame DSLR, because the real weight is not the 20 grams of the mirror uh, or even the compact size. It still has to have the same stuff, and it, I mean, it's just physics. It needs that big lens on it still, and so you didn't actually lose weight by switching that. Um, you know, if you're doing something like you, Larissa, you know, you're switching, you, you're using the so Sony a6300 or me, I'm using the, the Fuji X Pro 2, those are crop sensor cameras. And so are right. they lighter than the D800 and stuff? Absolutely. But are they that lighter than the Nikon D3200, the Nikon D500? Not so much. They're, they're about the same there. So in my opinion, it's much more a function of the sensor size, uh, which, which inherently means the lens size, um, and not so much whether it's mirrorless or not. I killed the discussion. <laughs> awesome. All right. <laughs> the next question is uh, coming from Jeremiah Johnston. Um, he is a little bit miffed because he took some photos for a real uh, for a real estate agent, um, and then after he submitted the photos to them, they edited the photos and made them darker. And he's editing on a on a 
color managed screen. Um, and so he feels like the photos were right. It was all calibrated. Um, and the photo, and then the realtor has, has darkened them down. So should he be mad? And what should he do? I think is the question. What do you think, Jeff? Um, yeah, I probably wouldn't be. If you got paid for the job already, the client was happy with the photos. You know, they can do whatever they want with them at that point. They paid for them. It's their, their, their photos. If they wanted them darker to look so that they looked right to them on the website, then they can do that. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry about it if I were him, especially with your logo not being on them. They're not going to really know that they came from you. So I wouldn't worry about it. That's how I feel about it. I, I feel like photographers sometimes are not great about remembering the old maximum of the customer's always right. And it's like the photographer is right and you will accept my art how it is. Um, <laughs> and it's just not a great practice if you want to make happy clients. And I have found out the hard way that real estate clients are extremely, extremely picky. Uh, so, <laughs> hey, he's happy. He likes the photos dark. I say make them dark. I, I just, I mean, I understand that you want to protect your image and stuff, but, uh, but you know, who's really going to know that it was you that, that took these? And, and, the, and the other point that I want to make on this is a, a color-managed screen, a calibrated screen, will always look dark when you put it on most people's screens. Uh, it, when you, or I'm sorry, will look too bright when you put it on most people's screens, which is exactly what happened here. When you calibrate your screen, everything looks super dark. It will look dark and kind of purplish to you on the screen, but when you print it, it's going to look perfect. It's going to look beautiful. Uh, but it's uncomfortable to sit and look at a screen that's calibrated just day in, day out, because it's dark. And I try to get used to it, but what I end up doing is turn off the calibration so I can use it day to day, and then when I'm going to print, I turn on the calibrated profile. And so the problem is your realtor screen is not going to be calibrated and chances are nobody who looks at the listing screen is going to be calibrated. And so though your screen may be technically correct, it's going to look wrong to everybody else. It is going to look too bright. And so I actually think the real estate agent has a point here. Uh, I think he's probably right to darken them uh, because they're being viewed on a screen and everybody keeps their screen brighter than what is quote unquote correct uh, when it's calibrated. Right. Here I am just killing conversations left. And right. <laughs> I agree entirely. It's it's a real challenge when your photos go out to the world. You can't control the conditions under which they're going to be viewed. Some people might be looking in a really bright room. Some people might be in a dark basement. You can't control how it's going to be. And it's it's tough because you you can't control how your images are going to be viewed. So if they're happy with it and, and can have the skills to go and change it so that it's a little darker, whatever, that's that's good. And if now, he Riley wants to Bowman, put them on. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. There must be a little latency. Okay. Uh, Riley Bowman said that he, his Olympus camera is quite a bit smaller and lighter. Um, and, and that's true. But again, that's a micro four thirds sensor. Four -thirds, so, yeah. yes, it's smaller, but it's not because the mirror's gone. It's because we're talking about a micro four thirds sensor. Sorry, what were you saying, Larissa? I was saying that if, um, I guess, it was. Mr. Jones, if he wanted to put his pictures on his portfolio and keep them as bright as he wanted, there's nothing to stop him from doing that. So he can have them on his screen how he wants them and his portfolio and the realtor can have them in MLS how he wants them. Very good. Stephen Morrow says, what is a good site to order normal glossy prints from? Where do you guys, uh, where do you guys order your prints? 
Pro so DPI. I, Sorry. Yeah, I, I've done I've done Pro DPI and actually their prices are really good. Um, but it's more convenient for me to just order them at Costco. Mm-hmm. I, I can order them in the morning, go pick them up in the afternoon, and that's super convenient. And on prints, on glossy prints, they do fine. They do great. Uh, question from Brian McGuckin. He says, stop <laughs> ignoring me, Jim. Question for the host. Who is your favorite IP podcaster from Indiana? <laughs> That would be Brian McGuckin. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, in terms of uh, uh, of ordering prints, I really do love Pro DPI, and we did a print test on ImprovedPhotography.com. If you just Google, just search, uh, you know, online print lab test, um, and and you'll you'll see the article. It usually ranks number one there. Um, and what what we found after after doing that was Pro DPI was definitely the best quality in our double blind test. Um, but the problem is that ordering from pro DPI is really not such a fun experience. You have to download the, uh, the Rose program. Uh, it's Java. So you got to install Java, uh, on your machine and it inevitably forgets your information every time. It's just a pain. And so I've been using Miller's a lot more lately which was very, very, very close to ProDPI in terms of print quality um, and similar in price. It's a little bit more, but I, I don't have to tear my hair out every time I order. And I don't <laughs> order prints that often. I really don't. And so I, I don't want to have a major thing happen every time that I do. It always seems We're- I need them like that afternoon. If I ever need to print, it's because I need it that afternoon for some project, something that we're doing. And so that's it just makes it real easy to go order through Costco. And we're lucky we have a um, really good printer here in town who he prints a lot of the items from the photography club. So I go to him a lot, too. Very cool. Well, uh, we have a lot to talk about in this episode. But before we get to that, I want to just remind you that the Improve Photography Retreat is coming up in March 2017. Um, and you can find all the all the details at improvephotographyretreat.com. There are only 40 tickets left. Uh, we've only had tickets up for sale for three weeks, and it's already almost sold out. We're getting really, really close. Um, Larissa is going to be there talking about photographing kids, and Jeff is going to be there talking about uh, photographing Lightroom and getting started. Some, uh, If you're more of a new, uh, new photographer, Jeff's going to have a great uh, workshop for you on that as well. Uh, it's going to be awesome. We have a all-star lineup of speakers coming um uh, almost all of the improved photography folks and also some of uh, our friends from the industry are going to be there uh should be a really fun time so check that out at improvephotographyretreat.com all right in the second half of the podcast we want to talk about some of the goings on in photography i'm gonna go first on this one because i learned a cool tip from the slr lounge website great website by the way if you don't uh, visit one that one i really do like their website so this is cool if you go um on your facebook app on your phone so if you're uploading photos uh you know from your dslr that you move over to your phone so that you can um uh uh, put them on instagram and stuff Uh, or if you're just uploading any photo to facebook um from your phone it's not gonna look good we all know that but there's a way to (laughs) fix it now you just go into settings and then you'll go into videos and photos. And there's an option there that I did not know about uh, called photo settings. And it's right there 
upload in HD. It's awesome. Um, and then your photo looks much better from mobile. And you can also have that uh, similar setting uh, to upload videos in HD. Did you guys know about this or am I just like the last person on the planet to know that was there? No, I yeah. didn't know either. I think they released it a little while ago and made a big deal out of it when they did. Uh, so, yeah, I turned that on. I missed it. If you also missed out, be sure to uh, change that setting in Facebook and your photos will look much better. Um, and also, I have been testing out Lightroom Mobile. Uh, you all know I was not big at all on Lightroom Mobile when it was released. Um, I'm still not in a lot of ways. I don't know who they hired to do the interface for this thing. Mobile is supposed to be easier. Um, and it's, ah, I, I just, you look at the, you get onto Lightroom mobile and I, I flip a couple things and tap stuff and it's like, ah, what is happening on this? It just, uh, it should not work how it does, but <laughs> they have added a new feature that I think is pretty cool. Um, that you're allowed, that you can now shoot photos in DNG straight from the app. Uh, I know this is supported on the iPhone 6S, 6S Plus, iPhone 7, and 7 Plus. I don't know about Android cameras, though, because there are a number of Android cameras that have been able to shoot RAW for some time. Jeff, do you know if Lightroom Mobile is compatible with them? Yeah, it actually uh, predated the iOS app being able to do that. So they have had, oh, they in, had that. on Android Lightroom Mobile being able to shoot RAW for a little while. Uh, handy. Anyway, it's pretty cool. Uh, that you can uh, now get the raw photos from uh, from your iPhone. I have tested it a little bit. I haven't played, you know, really put it through its paces to see how much editing latitude we're gonna get. My guess is not that much, just as a factor of of the of the sensor size. But it's cool that you can do it. The other thing that it brings up for me is. Is this another benefit to shooting uh, DNG? Uh, you know, as we're seeing, you know, camera phones now shooting in DNG, um, and some of the major camera manufacturers embracing DNG as their native RAW format. Um, is this going to push DNG into into the mainstream now that it's it's hitting mobile? What do you guys think? I think it has a real chance. Um, so that is one thing that's common between both Android and iOS on both platforms when you shoot RAW you get DNG files. And it's not just in Lightroom Mobile. If you use the native photo apps or other photo apps where you tell the cam the phone that you want a RAW file, it's going to do it in DNG format on the phone. So um, I think because of that, that is a major step forward in kind of standardizing what a RAW format looks like on DNG, in the DNG file format. So that's it has a chance. I didn't think it did before because... Nobody else was, well, few camera manufacturers were adopting the standard. Um, and you had to kind of manually copy it to DNG as you imported, which added more time. And there didn't seem to be a lot of value in doing that. In fact, I have photo taco episodes where I, I talked about how I was deciding. And I decided not to do DNG at the time. But this has a big step forward and, and I think uh, could become... Uh, progress towards having a standard. How great would it be if every single camera shot to DNG? That would be awesome. 
it would be great, but before that happens, I really hope that Adobe fixes the way that DNG works in their own products. It's crazy. DNG is their format. Uh, but when, I, when I've a couple times just switched, I'm like, all right, I'm going to switch my cameras to shoot DNG raw instead of, you know, the, you know, the CR2 for Canon, RAF for, for Fuji or, uh, or NEF for Nikon, whatever. Um, when I've done that, everything is even slower in Lightroom <laughs> trying to right. do it with DNG. It's crazy, but it's true. Um, so as soon as that's fixed, I could, I could see myself uh, making that switch over. Okay, um, last thing that I want to mention is a number of you have been uh, messaging me and asking about the Part 107 exam um, for drones, and I've been meaning to make a separate YouTube video about this, uh, kind of a, a quick study guide, but I, here it is just in a nutshell, what, uh, what, um, all, everything I know about it. Uh, so I've mentioned a couple times, it, this is only in the United States, uh, if you're flying a drone commercially, earning money anyway from the video, even ads um, on your on your video on YouTube, you need to uh, be registered with the FAA and get this license, uh, the remote pilot uh, license uh, to fly your drone. So this is called the Part 107 exam. It costs $150. You can just go to, uh, I think it's faa.gov slash UAS. Um, and, and there they'll have information. It's pretty easy to sign up. Uh, there's going to be a 1-800 number you'll call and just schedule a time to take your test. You don't have to do anything on the FAA website before that. Okay, you've scheduled your test. Now, you really probably should study. <laughs> I did not uh, study more than an hour before I went, and I was really surprised at how hard it is. Um, they have a sample test on the FAA website, and it's junk. It has nothing to do with the real test. Um, but some things you should know are, one, when in doubt, the answer is remote pilot in command. They, they asked like 10 questions that that was the answer for, <laughs> which basically means, you know, you, you can't rely on the spotter or somebody else watching uh, to be in charge of the drone. Whoever is the remote pilot in command, the person at the controls, that's you with the license. You're responsible for what happens. The other thing is everything is under the number of the rating. So uh, this will allow you to fly any drone under 55 pounds. And they will ask you uh, questions like, well, what about what if your drone weighs 55 pounds? And you have to know it. No, it has to be under 55 pounds or <laughs> under this length or under this speed. It, what, just memorize the numbers and then remember it's always under that. It's never uh, including that number. And then the last thing is maps. Uh, and this is where I thought was... Uh, was significant, uh, very important to understand, and has me now that I've already passed the test going back and actually learning this stuff because I, I didn't realize kind of the dangers that were there. Uh, but there are some serious things that you have to be aware of. Uh, you know, it's not just, you know, be five miles away from an airport. Uh, there are everywhere has different classes of airspace, and you need to know what the class is of airspace where you're going to be flying your drone. Um, and you need to check every time before you fly. Uh, like in Idaho, you know, we kind of don't think about it so much. I saw Sharky James is, is uh, in the chat here. Uh, he, he knows he lives in Idaho as well. We get wildfires all summer long. And so you can be up in the mountains and see smoke, but there's always smoke in the mountains in the summer. 
uh, and you can be flying your drone and get in big, big trouble and hamper the, the operations of, of the firefighters. So you really do need to look up and see if you can fly your drone at that time in that place. And so that's where you really need to learn how to read those aeronautical charts. They are super complicated, but watch a bunch of YouTube videos on just how to read those, those aeronautical maps and the different classes of airspaces. Uh, because I, I didn't realize how important it was to, to understand that whether you're flying commercially or not, it's pretty important. You can you can not only get in serious trouble, but you can you can put others at risk if you uh, don't understand how that works. So that's my spiel. That's really all I know. Then after you take the test, they give you a little piece of paper. You go on FAA website onto a, a little thing called IACRA. You submit your numbers, and then seven days later, kapoof, you get your license. A temporary one emailed to you, and then they mail you a cool-looking thing, and you are legit. So that's the process. I wanted to make a separate YouTube video, but but uh, there it is if you're interested in doing it. You have to get it updated every two years. Uh, so you can't just do this once and be done with it. Every two years, you got to come back and, and re-up it. Ah, killing conversations left and right tonight. <laughs> I'm just nailing it. Jeff, you wanted to talk a little bit about JPEG Mini versus Lightroom exports. Let's hear it. Yep. So I wanted to uh, call the IP community to uh, attention and mobilize to come hut? Let's do and this. help me. Uh, I want to do a test between JPEG Mini and Lightroom exports, straight kind of Lightroom exports. So I've I've created a test. Uh, some test images. There's 14 test images there. And I, I varied the style of images so that we have a lot of different types of images to throw at this software. Um, some that are really simple backgrounds, like a, a fully white background, some that's a starry night sky, some that's more detailed photos of people or landscapes. I want to try to really give it a lot of different scenarios to test and see how the two compare. So I'm going to be doing a photo talk episode on JPEG Mini, kind of what it is, what it does. But in short, right now, it's a, it's some software that tries to figure out kind of the best compression level for your JPEG as you export it so that you get the, the smallest possible file size on your hard drive, but the, still the best possible picture quality, image quality in that JPEG. And so it, it tries to figure that out for you. My recommendation for a while has been that when you use Lightroom to export JPEGs, you set the quality level to 77%. And that's because that's, for the most part, a, a really good compromise between the compression level and meaning the file size on your hard drive is going to be small versus the image quality, that it doesn't really significantly impact the image quality in most situations. Yeah, I so, agree with that. And and just to be clear, for people who may not be sure why we're doing this, this is really only an important uh, conversation if you're like putting the photos on the web or emailing the photos somewhere where the file size needs to be minimized and ma make it look good. So you know, Jeff and I are doing this all the time uh, because we're exporting photos and then putting it into a blog post. If we if we export the the full photo, that page is going to take forever to load on the website. And so, uh, so that's why this conversation is relevant. Sure. It can also help as you're delivering to, to clients. If you deliver in a JPEG format, you could potentially give them smaller files. So it takes less time for download and less time for them to kind of walk through them, go th scroll through them. But that's kind of the objective of the test. The, there's kind of two parts to it. 
what I want to find out is, can people tell the difference between when it's been run through JPEG Mini and when it's just a straight Lightroom export at 77% quality? Ver and can they tell the difference? And then is the file size really, really different? And that's not something that um, I think people are going to be a little surprised at those results based on what my early testing. Um, and then is it worth the money then? Be with those two kind of qualities, those two things that we're looking at, is it worth paying for this product? Because you can get a trial version and you, I think you can do up to 20 a day of conversions on the X. And if that's all you do, then you don't have to pay anything because you can use that trial version forever as far as I can tell. But um, I think it's $150 to buy the product and is it worth it? So I'm, I'm looking at it from my perspective, like I do always with everything I look at, at from a hobbyist perspective. Is it worth spending that money to buy this product and have help with this export? So that's my objective in doing this test. There's been a lot of other people that have done tests. There's a lot who have said even how much support they, they have for the product and, and how impressed they were with it. But my, my objective is a little different, I think, than what the, the others I've read have with it. So I, I want help with it. If you want to help me, you can go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash, <laughs> I should have picked a different slash uh, thing here, but it's slash L-R-V-J-Mini. So that's like Lightroom <laughs> L-R and then a V. Let's put that one in the show notes. What's that? Let's put that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. <laughs> and and that, it's, That's it's, great. I'm glad, to, I'm glad that you're testing that. I, I ran through it. About a year and a half ago, I would say. And for me, uh, Lightroom and Photoshop actually beat it a lot of times in terms of file size and quality. But, you know, things change, and I'd, I'd be interested in see how it does. But it seems like a great company. So if you'll go to that link, there's a, a little Google form, you can, and you can download about all the 14 files. There's an A and a B version from my website. Get full detail. You Like, you can go 400% in on the pixel peeping if you want to to compare the files. And, uh, and just give me, uh, you know, through the form, you can tell me which one you think is better image quality. And, um, and then I'm going to go over the results and kind of more detail about the product and how it works in a photo taco, photo taco episode later in October. Very cool. Uh, a couple other things I wanted to go over real quick. One is uh, Lightroom CC 2015.7. How stupid is it that it's still named 2015? I don't, yeah, I, I know. Terrible <laughs> marketing. Uh, it's awful. I get questions somewhat regularly that people are like, was something wrong? Why am I getting the 2015 version? It's almost <laughs> yeah. 2017. Uh, right. And it's horrible. It just looks bad on Adobe when, you know, their main concern with Adobe CC, everybody's concern was they're not going to be doing anything. Here we are still using Lightroom 2015. Right. Even though it's in, it's been 2016 releases the last four, I think. Anyway, that's the latest version. It's the most current version, um, which has a the standalone version, the 6.7. So that's the non-creative cloud version is also there at that revision level. The biggest thing that there's there's two things that, that they changed, and I guess there's a few more, but the two biggest things were um, smart previews, that it has kind of, <laughs> Victoria Bampton and I on the Photo Taco podcast, we called it turbo mode. And it was this idea that there's this huge advantage in performance in Lightroom if after you import everything and you generate the smart previews, if you go rename the folder on your hard drive so that Lightroom is forced into thinking that it doesn't have access to the originals anymore, it's way faster. 
And so I've been using that hack for a long time. And we thought, how cool would it be if in Lightroom you had a checkbox that you could check and say, and tell Lightroom, I don't want you to use the originals right now. Just use the smart previews. And that's what they did, but they limited it to only the develop module. It doesn't help you in library or anywhere else. It's only the develop module. So that's still good. And I see I have seen a um, a good performance improvement. Well, not using my hack where I go rename the file on the hard drive. But I still am doing the hard drive hack because it helps in other areas than just the develop module. The other big thing that they changed was updating it so that it works properly on the new version of the Mac, Mac OS Sierra. And so if you want to upgrade to Mac OS Sierra, and we put a, um, a blog post out on the Improved Photography website, but uh, you want to update to that version or don't update. There's issues. It's kind of minor issues, but it's issues in import in particular that don't work with previous versions of Lightroom CC or the standalone version. So if you want to stay on the standalone version prior to 6.7 or the Creative Cloud version 2015.7, if you are happy there and you don't want to say you don't want like the new Select and Mask tool, for example, and you want to keep your fine edges and stay on that version, then don't upgrade to Mac OS Sierra because those those are made for each other and it doesn't work. Not everything works properly under Mac OS Sierra. Now, also talking about Mac OS Sierra, as long as you've updated to the very most current version of Lightroom, things seem to be working just fine. I haven't had any issues with either Mac OS Sierra or Lightroom CC 2015.7, as long as they're both upgraded. Very cool. Well, Larissa, you wanted to talk a little bit about shooting in harsh light today. Yes, um, I have a client that I'm going to be shooting on Saturday, and it's a maternity shoot, and of course at the beach and she wants to shoot at 12 30 one o'clock in the afternoon i you know of course suggested morning or evening but she's getting her hair and makeup done so you know and i seem to run into this a lot um a lot of the clients here want to shoot on the beach they want to shoot in the afternoon they don't want to shoot in the early evening especially during the summertime when you know the sun rises so early and it sets so late i mean you're talking like eight or nine o'clock at night uh-huh. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. you no, I think you had ahead. a little feedback there. Go ahead, Larissa. Okay, yes. Um, they. I try and get them to shoot in the evening. I actually had a senior shoot the other day at 545, which wasn't, you know, evening, but it was as close as we could get to it. I think the sun was setting around 7 or 730, um, but there was a lot of overhang. So one of the things I do to combat that is... Um, I try and find shade, obviously, on the beach. That's not possible. Um, I'll use my flash out in, you know, in the sun. And I know uh, it's funny because a lot of people, regular people, aren't used to, you know, photographers with their flash in their hand out in the daylight. So they're looking like, what are you doing? Because I will, um, I'll have the triggers on the flash and I'll have someone hold the flash and instead of bringing a light stand or anything like that, so I'll have like the mom or something hold the flash over to the side. Um, I'll use a reflector, not as much. I prefer to use my flash outside than the reflector. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do to combat that. But I know here it seems like everybody wants to shoot in the afternoon, three o'clock, one o'clock, you know, something like that, just so they can get on with their day. So you have to make sure that you have the right tools to combat, you know, the harsh light that we typically do not like to shoot in. 
Very cool. Yeah, I, another thing that has always worked for me uh, when I was in Florida shooting people on the beach was uh, if you get any poses where they can lay down, like in the sand, it's great because the sand is just a gigantic reflector and will bounce light, light right back up in their faces. Or even, you know, kneeling uh, anywhere where they're kind of a little bit lower to the ground, uh, those poses always work well. Well, in every episode, we like to leave you with a doodad of the week. Um, and today, I want to recommend uh, something to keep you safer while you are out uh, shooting. I know a lot of people um, have apprehension about, you know, going out and shooting late at night or something like that. And so I'm going to recommend bear spray. Um, I have actually, so bear spray is just pepper spray, but it's in a bigger bottle and it I mean, it ho like if you've ever shot uh, actual pepper spray, it's like this tiny little squirt gun that usually goes about three feet. You got to be point blank in somebody's face to use uh, pepper spray. Bear spray, you can hose anything within a 30 foot ra radius with pepper spray. Um, and so it is awesome. I keep it in uh, in my uh, photography bag. Uh, I have quite a few cans, actually, that I keep in, you know, hiking backpacks and stuff. But I think it's great to take when, you, when you're out shooting, especially if you're going to be in alone in remote places. Uh, it's a great thing to have for the wildlife and for the crazy life. Um, bear spray uh, only costs <laughs> about 30 bucks and uh, keeps you safer while you're out shooting. I've actually had to spray a bear once. Oh, I really? came over a hill once when I was hiking and, like, 10 feet from me was a little bear cub sitting there. And I was like, oh, Ooh. man, <laughs> I just didn't know it was there. I sneaked up on it. And sure enough, 10 seconds later, mama comes charging through the <laughs> bush. Uh, oh, so gosh. I was glad I had the bear spray with me. All right, Jeff, what do you have for us? <laughs> so I have, um, you know, photographers, I, I know a lot of them really like um, different brands of rechargeable batteries. And uh, this past week, thewirecutter.com, is a, it's a site I, I like a lot. I agree yeah, with cool most of their testing and assessments. There's some of them I disagree with. But this is one that I don't question. They recently did testing. They, they got a whole bunch of brand-new batteries. They got all of the name brands, and they put them through the ringer. They, they custom-developed some testing rigs to drain, take a fully charged battery and drain it down in 15 minutes to nothing and back so they could do a whole bunch of charge cycles see when they started to lose that ability to fully charge and in their testing they've determined that currently as we record this here in 2016 the energy recharge universal battery energizer sorry energizer recharge universal batteries uh, kept the best for the price so given the cost they kept their charge as good as like the Eneloop or um, some of the other name brands that a lot of photographers swear by. So that was really interesting to me and thought I'd bring it up on the podcast today. Very now, cool. I have a question. Um, yeah. And I know when I go out and I shoot, I will, you know, put my battery in my camera, take pictures. And if I come home and my camera's not fully dished or my battery still has charge in it, I will leave it in there. Same thing as my flash batteries. And I was wondering, you know, do you guys come home and automatically stick your batteries back on the charger or do you leave them in your camera or flash or whatever until they're powered, you know, until they run out of the charge and then recharge them? So for me, I have enough extras that I usually don't unload them immediately and put them in. 
But I will, just before I go out to a photo shoot, I'll check, and I usually just replace them at that point. I'll take the chargers out of the charger, or the batteries out of the charger, and put it in my camera and in my flashes and go out with full, fresh charge. Um, I know the recommendation that I've heard on um, on most batteries today is to try to keep them between 80% and 20%. Um, if they get down below 20%, they start getting into the point where they don't recharge as well. And if you take, if you're constantly charging them, it's exactly the same problem. They don't keep the charge as well anymore. So, if, so trying to keep it between those two is what they recommend. But boy, is that tough to do. It's really hard to evaluate. How do you know even if your batteries are down to 20%? There's not any indicators on anything that says 20%. Usually have like the little battery bar and there's three bars or there's two bars. Or So I guess that would be 33%. But that's kind of the, the basic recommendation. But I... The, the, especially the double A's are cheap enough. I'm not worried about it. I just stick them in there. I have one set in the charger at all times. And then as I go out to do a shoot, I'll take them out of that charger and put them in my flashes. And I'll normally just dump them in my bag and hold on to them until my battery actually dies. And then, especially on my flash, I can't tell the power. You know, there's no battery indicator on there. So it'll just stop working yep. and I'll just grab another bat, you know, set from my bag. And Larissa, what are you recommending for us this week? Um, my doodad is the Powerbank Rapid Charge three-time battery backup battery power. When we went um, out of town and also lately my iPhone just does not want to seem to hold its charge for very long. <laughs> I think it wants me to replace it. I normally will hit about 20% by lunchtime. Um, I can whip this thing out and charge my my phone or, you know, whatever it is that I've got that's on USB. Um, and I've actually used it to charge the um, little battery pack that I have for the A6300. It's a dual charger. And it actually lasts a long time. I have, it's got four little lights on it and I have not brought it down to the, you know, the one little light at one time yet and I'll sit there and charge my phone and then it'll die and then I'll charge it again and then it'll die. So it was really good to have handy when we were traveling or even, you know, just to keep in my bag when I go to work because I don't always bring a cord with me or, you know, a, I end up leaving the plug at home and I have the cord. So I end up plugging it into my laptop at work, but this works a lot better and it has a charge for Anything USB, you can turn it around or you can charge. It's got a plug for the um, the 6 Plus and the 6. And it also has an Android plug on it that comes with it too. So, Awesome. Really handy. Great recommendation. Well, thanks everybody for joining us in this episode of the Improved Photography Podcast. And we will see you in another seven days. <laughs>